Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Inside Asia podcast from the Center for Asian Democracy at the University of Louisville. This is Dave Buckley, CAD's director, and Paul Weber, endowed chair of politics, science, and religion here at UofL. As always, thanks to the great leadership of our colleague, Tori Dahl, CAD's podcast channel um, is available for subscription and uh, reviews. I want to take a minute before we start, actually, to note uh, Tori's contribution to our center here. Um, in uh, in the next couple of weeks, Tori is going to be graduating from our master's program here in political science. She's finishing up a great uh, directed research project related to democratic backsliding and civil society participation with a special look at Thailand, a place that she has spent some time as a student. Um, and uh, and we've benefited so much from her work here and uh, are, are very proud of her for finishing up and we will miss her very much around the pod for sure. Uh, pod episodes are accessible, as always, through the CAD website, through the University of Louisville, as well as through Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search Center for Asian Democracy. Subscribe, review, and stay up to date on future content. We'll have just a bit of a break um, in the coming weeks as we move through the academic break for the holidays and new year, but we'll be back with you in uh, early to mid-January with both in-person events as well as uh, podcast episodes. I'm very glad today to be joined on the interviewer side of the mic uh, by CAD's new postdoc, Taha Roof. Taha, how are you? Good to see you today. I'm doing well. It's getting chilly out here today. Yeah, that's right. Well, you came from Michigan, right? So this is yes. what you, this is what you're used to. Yeah. <laughs> Still not as much as Michigan, for sure. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We won't get carried away with ourselves. Um, all right. Well, uh, we'll get right down to it because we're going to have uh, an extensive conversation uh, today. Um related to the upcoming election in Bangladesh. We're going to be joined by Drs. Shahab Inim Khan and Jeffrey McDonald um, for a really important discussion on Bangladesh's elections, which are scheduled for early January 2024. Um, this is an election period that uh, is, as has been the case in Bangladesh in recent elections, uh, mostly characterized by contention between the governing Awami League and the BNP um, in opposition. Um, this particular round has seen um, uh, increased uh, tensions, including um, in the past month, um, street violence um, between political factions um, and international concerns about the quality of elections um, and the free and fair uh, nature or potential for lack thereof. Um, it's been um, a, a contentious election season that has seen the main opposition party uh, now announce a boycott of the election. Um, and uh, in response to that, um, different strategic decisions being made both by the governing party but also by uh, individual candidates, many of whom are now running as independents. Um, so it's a very fluid situation. We're recording on December 5th, um, and so we have roughly a month for things to change, but, but we really have two uh, of, uh, of the world's leaders in understanding um, the dynamics of elections and democracy in the country to help us unpack this as best we can uh, a few weeks out from the election. Uh, just to briefly introduce our speakers, Shahab Inam Khan is professor in the Department of International Relations at Jahangirnagar University uh, in Bangladesh. He was a 2022-2023 Fulbright Research Scholar and professor uh, in the U.S. at the University of Delaware. Um, he has extensive expertise in foreign affairs, defense, security, uh, migration, um, and energy in the country and in the region, um, uh, indeed across the Indo-Pacific region. Um, in addition to his academic work, um, Shahab has consulted extensively for the United Nations, UNDP, UN Women's Program, um, uh, for USAID, uh, the International Republican Institute, IRI, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, um, and, uh, and working in collaboration with the World Bank. 
um, he has a di- really diverse set of expertises that, that give a great sense of um, the, the diverse ways that uh, Bangladesh's democracy has actually strengthened and, uh, uh, in the past decade. Dr. Jeffrey McDonald is visiting expert in the South Asia program at the United States Institute of Peace and a non-resident associate at Harvard University's Asia Center. Um, Jeff has uh, worked extensively on politics in Bangladesh over the course of his career. Uh, he's an expertise uh, expert in political and extremist violence, democratic design, conflict management, um, and, uh, and democratization in South Asian and comparative contexts. Um, his writing has been published in academic outlets like the Journal of Democracy and policy outlets like the United, from the United States Institute of Peace uh, and Foreign Policy um, and in popular outlets like the Washington Post. Um, we're so thrilled to have these two uh, experts with us here today. Um, so we've got two great voices to speak to the, the current crisis and want to get to that very quickly. I'm curious, just real quick, Taha, as we start, um, what stood out to you about the conversation that we just recorded earlier today? I was very intrigued by the trajectory of political competition that is expected, just in the sense that um, from the same party, candidates were expected to stand up in the election as independent candidates. And also the role of international, um, the political actors in Bangladesh and how they engaged with the international community. So it wasn't just who's a better nationalist than uh, uh, the other, but seems like a different kind of a trajectory of political competition that's taking place in Bangladesh. That's what's very intriguing. Yeah, I mean, the the dynamics around the boycott, which has been sort of brewing for some time, but was just really confirmed uh, in some ways within the last week, um, give a really great sense of the challenges that that poses, even to an opposition party, which, you know, it's clear from our conversation has reasons for pursuing the boycott. But at the same time, there's a lot of costs that come with that, a lot of obstacles. And, and it seems like the opposition is um, is going to to struggle to to turn that boycott into an effective political strategy in the coming weeks. Although we'll see, uh, we'll see how events play out. Um, so, without any further ado, let's turn to our conversation with Shahab Inam Khan and Jeffrey McDonald on Bangladesh's January 2024 national election. All right. Well, Dr. Shahab Anam Khan and Jeffrey McDonald, thank you so much for joining us uh, this afternoon. Great to be here. Great to be here. Maybe you two could um, get us started with the event that has Bangladesh back in global headlines, uh, the country's January 2024 national elections. Um, Can you just start us out by getting us up to speed on who the major players are heading into this election? Sure. And I can start on this. I mean, You've got the ruling Awami League, which has been in power since December of 2008. They're going for their fourth straight term in office. And then you've got the opposition Bangladesh Nationalist Party, the BNP. They have been in power in the past. They're in power from 1991 to 96, and then again from 2001 to 2006. But they've been locked out of power since. The BNP's chairperson, Khaleda Zia, who's the former prime minister, is under house arrest and ailing. It's acting chairperson, uh, which is her son, Tariq Rahman, is in exile in London, providing guidance to the DACA-based party officials. And between these two parties, the primary focus of the political debate during this election has been on how the election will be administered. 
on the one hand, you've got the BNP along with many of the opposition parties that are demanding the return of a neutral caretaker government to oversee the election. The Iwami League had eliminated this system in, in 2011, and the BNP sees this, this system as the only way to hold a free and fair election. For the government on their side, they say a caretaker government system is unconstitutional per a ruling from Bangladesh's Supreme Court. So the system is done um, and that they're going to hold an election under the Election Commission. Neither side has budged from these demands and the elections are now approaching. They've been scheduled for January 7th. The opposition is boycotting the election and has escalated their tactics in pursuit of their demands. They're now engaged in strikes and blockades, which the government is trying to control with kind of large-scale deployment of security forces into the streets, as well as their supporters. They've also arrested, according to the BNP, over 20,000 opposition supporters and activists. Uh, this number, I think, is, is hard to confirm. These engagements between the two sides have turned violent, I think most notably on October 28th. Opposition supporters on one side, Awami League supporters and the police on the other engaged in what was essentially a day-long street battle that saw property destruction, a police officer was killed, and a protester also died in, in the melee. And so those are, I think, are some of the, the key developments that bring us up to, to this point. Yeah, I think uh, what Jeff has uh, said uh, literally captures everything. Uh, I would just add a few other uh, aspects, which is, I think, very important, um, because we do have uh, other political parties, for an example, uh, I won't say that recognized by the election commission, but Islamic political parties such as Jamaat Islami and others are also within the scenario and the landscape. Uh, and then, of course, now what we are seeing that a number of people, I mean, candidates have been brought from different uh, political parties uh, to uh, contest for the election as an independent candidate. So that's a new group of people that we are now seeing who are becoming an important actor in this political landscape. Uh, then obviously, uh, apart from the uh, politicals, then we certainly have uh, law enforcement agencies and the civil service and others who are also an active, I would say that they're the political, but certainly they're the auxiliary uh, forces who would be responsible for delivering an election. Uh, so certainly their roles uh, in the election will also be very important because this is where the international community will also focus in. Uh, obviously, the opposition, uh, I mean, pre predominantly, which we call as BNP, uh, is a critical actor, uh, but certainly um, the new independent actors and how the uh, law enforcement agencies and civil society will implement this entire electoral project will also determine the quality as well as the uh, outcome of the election in the coming days. Yeah, so the, the tensions between the Awami League and the BNP are, are probably why this election has gotten more attention even than a normal national election would in the international press especially. Um, so the boycott has been announced, right? But there's also been this dynamic of sort of independent politicians and, and newer sort of political movements peeling off of that. Can, can you give us a little update on where the boycott stands as of now on December 5th? 
um, on the whole, the boycott of the BMP seems like it's a done deal, but there are still these sort of breakaway factions or newer candidates running independently. Um, how's that likely to uh, to look in the next couple of weeks? Should I go, Jeff? Yeah, go for it. I, know, I think uh, uh, that's a complicated question because first of all, uh, I was uh, uh, I was speaking to all the political parties over the past few weeks. Uh, the first problem that I saw coming from uh, BNP uh, is that uh, their massive uh, disconnection with the reality, electoral reality. And when I say the massive disconnection with the electoral reality means uh, they still hope that the people will come and back them up for an anti-incumbency movement, uh, which I doubt will be happening anytime soon. So this is one major problem. The second problem is uh, the opposition. When uh, when I mention opposition, uh, consider it as BNP, uh, has, uh, has been banking on the international community to a great extent. Uh, and I think uh, that part of the story is fading away because um, they haven't been really justified their position uh, for boycotting the election. Now, the demand that they have is that the prime minister's resignation. The problem uh, with that is there is a constitutional obligation for the prime minister to continue. But on the other hand, if she steps down, I mean, who is going to be uh, the successor that that has been a question because our has been repeatedly mentioning it that look uh, uh, even if if we step down I mean uh, constitution won't permit you to come up with some sort of what you call interim government or caretaker government so I think that's a no-brainer for BNP to really push for that this is one side of the story the second side of the story uh, is that the BNP hasn't really been uh, coming up with a very concrete appealing message which will be supported by the mass population. I mean, mass population is least interested in the resignation of the government, but rather they're heavily focusing on the day-to-day -day issues such as inflation, energy crisis, and whatever uh, the civic amenities are. So which has long been ignored by the uh, by, by BNP, although they mentioned it in many times, but their demand has not been translated into the aspiration of the most of the people. The third problem that I have figured out when I spoke to most of the people, they also think that uh, the particip lack of participation of BNP uh, essentially steals away or perhaps essentially uh, deters people from going to the election electoral polling booths. Uh, which means that uh, already 2014 has been a questionable election. 2018, according to the people, or perhaps BNP, is a questionable election. But uh, the mass people also wanted BNP to go to election so that they can go to the polling booth. Uh, the second argument the public would essentially give that, well, if they had gone for election and stood for the election, 
for the last, I mean, even the day when the election happens, we would have had given, uh, we would have had some sort of reason to blame the government if there is any kind of anomalies or perhaps there is a, uh, controversies or uh, ballot paper stuffing. Now, then, since they're not going to the election, I mean, uh, that certain sort of uh, allegations will be very difficult for the public to make. So, therefore, they think that uh, BNP's participation, non-participation in the election might be a political uh, agenda for BNP, but for the public is that they don't have much reason for go for uh, for going to the election uh, election day to the election poll, so these are the three major problems that uh, the boycott has resulted in for BNP. But on the other hand, for Awami League, it is certainly I mean, if you take any South Asian uh, political culture, I mean, we have uh, the culture of winner takes all. So what happens is uh, basically Awami League certainly is much more comfortable and confident than ever because it is uh, they now have a very strong, credible argument by saying that we have tried to bring BNP to election and we were open to criticism. And uh, I have extensively written and they, they were actually willing to talk to BNP and BNP did not decide did decide not to participate in these talks and so on. So therefore, what happens is that for Awami League, the ruling party, they certainly have much more comfortable ground to argue that uh, despite our best effort that we couldn't bring these people to the election so that the election can be inclusive and participatory. Now, when it comes to participatory, Awami League will still have a greater leverage over here by saying, of course, I mean, those who are coming to contest for the election as an independent candidate is uh, by their own choice. I mean, and uh, even if you go and tell them that why are they independent? I mean, is there any pressure for the government? And the government will immediately tell the international community why uh, these people listen to our, our pressure or our... So therefore, that kind of argument is not going to be really credible argument for any of the parties. So therefore, this boycott has really ended up in a losing faith, uh, the public faith on BNP. And of course, uh, BNP has still an option to come back to the election. And I think uh, there is a lot of messaging coming from the government by saying that they're willing to see that they come to election and then the electoral date can be rescheduled. And I think these are the points uh, I think is 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 making the whole situation much more in favor of the uh, government rather than, I mean, ruling party rather than uh, BNP as such. All right, so this is very much related to the next question. Um, a boycott is obviously a political risk to the opposition in some regards. How did it come to this in the sense that what are the concerns about electoral credibility and government's action towards the political opposition that have led to this boycott. Yeah, and I think Shahab just gave a, a good overview of some of the downsides of the boycott strategy. I think in terms of context, election boycotts are not a new political strategy in Bangladesh and certainly not, not from the BNP. The BNP boycott elections in 2014, they kind of briefly flirted with boycotting again in 2018 and then participated they then 
briefly boycotted sitting their um, elected members of parliament into parliament and then kind of reversed course and, and sat those members in par parliament. And now the BNP is, is back to boycotting. So why boycott? I mean, I think there has been increasing concerns around the quality of democratic competition in Bangladesh. When you look at all the democratic indices, VDEM, Freedom House, Reporters Without Borders, Civicus, they all note a shrinking space for dissent and political competition. The removal of the, the caretaker government system in 2011 was enormously controversial and viewed as partisan by the opposition. And I think there are many Bangladeshis even outside of the opposition who believe the caretaker government system is essential for a free and fair election. And they simply don't trust the election commission to oversee um, elections, particularly an election commission run by the ruling party. And there is evidence for this. I mean, they'll cite irregularities in the 2018 national elections, recent by-elections. There was a video of an Awami League supporter simply just kind of stamping ballots in favor of the Awami League. And so you do have the, some of these issues of irregularities. And so for the opposition, all of this combines into a setting that is not um, conducive for, for electoral participation in, in their view. It is, I think, worth noting that the Awami League will acknowledge that there are problems. They don't promise a perfect election, but they argue they're making a kind of good faith effort to ensure a credible process and that its critics exaggerate the problems. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious to to hear you all's read on the BNP's sort of longer term strategy. I mean, have you, as you've said, this isn't the first time that boycotts or threats of boycotts have happened in Bangladesh or, you know, more more broadly. Um, but it, it sounds like you all aren't entirely sure what the sort of medium term strategy is here. What is the BNP hoping to uh, to get out of this um, in the next six weeks or or in the next sort of two to five years? Do you all have any sense for that? I mean, if you're talking about a very short term, I mean, I don't think uh, at least, uh, but when you talk to all the political parties, I really don't see BNP has a very credible strategy at the moment. I mean, which they should have otherwise, but uh, apparently what it looks like um, that uh, they're still hoping uh, that some sort of uh, external pressure will create uh, some sort of balancing fulcrum for them. Uh, on top of that, uh, they also hope that uh, the economic perils that we are now seeing is going to work as some sort of anti-incumbency movement. Uh, uh, but I'm not too sure because if the election is happening in January 7th, uh, the time frame is literally less than five weeks. And in the next five weeks, it is very difficult to see that the economy will really shatter or perhaps the external actors will really radically come and uh, really create some sort of pressure on the government. That's not something I'm seeing. But what I, I understand is that uh, they... Um, if BNP had some sort of strategy, they would have spelt it out by saying that what they are going to do during the election time and the post-election time, and obviously uh, the next election, which is scheduled to be in 2029. So which is absolutely missing. So I, I, I doubt if they really have some sort of concrete 
agenda that can help them to really uh, compete with the current ruling party. Uh, so this is one. On the other hand, if you look at the other political parties, I mean, for an example, Jatiya Party or even other Islamic parties, they're heavily reliant on the current political ecosystem. So they really don't see that uh, the change in the status quo within the political landscape will be helpful for them. So I think most of the political parties who has been who were part of the past immediate past uh, parliament would like to see a massive change coming from the ruling party as such. So which means the other political parties continues to have the same strategy that they had in 2014 and 2018. So that's not going to change substantially. Um, what we are also going to see is the role of the independent candidate. And uh, this is where I'm stressing, because this is not a new thing, but what, what happens is that many of the uh, independent candidates are coming from BNP, some of them are coming from the ruling party, some of them are coming from the ruling party affiliates, and how they are going to really fight against uh, the incumbency or means like Awamili candidates over there. And and that's probably going to bring some can, uh, some election, uh, I mean, credibility in a sense in terms of public participation. So we're going to see a rise in number of people coming to the polling booths compared to uh, any other years, I mean, particularly 2014 and 2018. Uh, so that's something we are going to see. And we are also going to see uh, the role of the Islamic political parties, because Islamic political parties are also filling up the void of uh, the absence uh, of BNP. I mean, I would always argue that these are the people who could have kept the Islamists out of the bay, I mean, in the bay. But certainly now, since they have, uh, they are not willing to part, uh, a lot of people will change their affiliation towards the Islamist political parties or the Islamic political parties. There's no harm in Islamic political parties, but certainly this can always translate into, uh, into certain things which is not complying with the rule of the, I mean, law of the land or the constitutional obligations that the government has. So in a sense, uh, I'm, I'm also seeing the new trends coming up that uh, public support may well uh, be shifting towards uh, the non-democratic uh, forces. And in that case, well, a lot of people argue that Awamilik uh, constantly becoming much more quasi-authoritarian. But I think the peril is somewhere else, because uh, when you don't have political parties such as BNP and others not behaving rationally in terms of political participation. This paves a way for the other political parties, I mean, the ultra-right and the rights to come into, come and fill in the void. And that's where I think uh, I will be seeing a new wave of political uh, decision-making, political ecosystem in the coming years. Shahab, you made some... Sorry, go ahead, Jeff. I was just going to add um, one point, and I, I mean, I think in some ways the BNP at this point in the election calendar is running a, a post-election strategy, right? They're hoping that the election boycott delegitimizes the outcome, 
domestic unrest grows, the international community retaliates against the Awami League, perhaps with more sanctions and isolation. This kind of shakes the, the faith of the bureaucracy on the ALs, the Awami League's hold on power and kind of corners them into calling new elections. And there's some historical precedent for this. When you look at the process in 1996, when the BNP was in power and the Iwami League was in opposition, they ran a similar strategy of kind of boycott and were able to pressure the BNP, then incumbent BNP into holding a new election. So I think the BNP in some ways is probably looking to that historical example as something they might be able to replicate. I was going to say, uh, Shahab, you made some very crucial observations about um, say the BNP, first of all, being out of power for such a long time. Second, its own leader being uh, uh, guiding the party from an exile position. Right. And then um, there is uh, its own dependency of its rhetoric, political rhetoric on international criticism. Yeah. Uh, then you mentioned that um, its own uh, candidates might be running independent as well. So is this boycott strategy then, in essence, a strategy of survival rather than to win? No, I mean, I clearly see the, no survival element in this. I mean, the survival element uh, is probably if they had participated in the election or perhaps if they had plan B or C to mobilize people and come people coming to the street and taking uh, a hard action against the government. That's not going to happen. Um, rather, what happens is, I would say that the, their, uh, their, their strategy had a lot of error at this stage. The error, number one, is they really miscalculated the public pulse, as I mentioned. And, and if you are a political scientist, you would understand it, because the public pulse, as I mentioned, is much more uh, towards the economic need and others, because over the 10, 15 years of Bangladesh's economic growth has gone to a level which is astronomically higher than you, we could have anticipated. Now we are aiming for the LDC graduation in 2026, which means the money is very much within the public atmosphere, which was largely missing back in the 90s, 80s, 90s, and the early 2000s. So that's a completely different reality that we see. The strategy that BNP had is basically the 90s and 2010 and uh, that time of strategy, which does not really match with the ground reality that we have. I mean, it's pretty much like I, 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 I might be mistaken, but certainly it reminds me of the Soviet strategy, but they went for economic liberalism, but they, they, they forgot to liberalize their political realities. So, so this is pretty much like that. I mean, they forgot that the economic situation and the economic realities being in denial uh, is completely different than the strategies they have undertaken. So this is a fundamental error. When it comes to the survival uh, issue, I mean, at least uh, one thing I have to give credit to BNP that uh, uh, until the October 28, uh, October 28, they tried their level best not to get into any kind of violence. And I'm quite sure the government has taken it uh, in a very positive uh, gesture, so is the international community. But October 28th onward, the violence and other events that had happened, whether 
uh, we may always uh, disagree or agree whether the BNP was a part of it or not a part of it. But the fact remains is that uh, neither they could really create some sort of narrative which is convincing that they're not part of the uh, what we call uh, the violence. Uh, so, which means uh, the people are once again confused. And when I mention confused, in a sense, I'm talking about much more of an urban population because I don't have the data on the rural population. But the urban population is now very much confused. So, I don't really see it from a very survival point of view, but certainly I see it from a political, tactical point of view, which went uh, probably to a great extent uh, uh, wrong. Uh, and then we then certainly they have one more problem is the lack of coordination, which was pretty much evident in 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 during the month of October, uh, because there was a lot of uh, discussion about uh, how the central uh, leadership is seeing the leadership in exile is seeing or the grassroots are seeing. I mean, one has to be in the field to understand that level of discoordinated effort. And I'm not saying any of them are wrong, but uh, essentially what happened is there is a lack of uh, coordination despite what uh, the leadership is mentioned. Before we move on to <clears throat> the Awabi League, I just have one more question about the organizational, organizational capacity that you hinted on. It seems that uh, organizational capacity of BNP is lacking in some regard at different levels leadership uh field workers and the middle-level leadership um is that also the case with the jamaat islami and other islamist actors no no uh, i mean jamaat is a completely different bulky i mean uh look at the way that jamaat didn't really take i mean so far as i read media and others i mean i don't see that they were a part of the conflict narratives or the violence narratives i mean they literally took themselves out of uh, 28 28th october violence or anything well they've been calling a strike and everything uh, but i don't see that there is a strong narrative that says uh, that jamaat was a part of all this violence this is one the second, Jamaat still has a very strong leadership, tiered leadership within itself. So it's much more of an organized, much more of a hierarchical, much more of a, uh, what I would say, that structured, uh, organizationally structured entity. But they are not, uh, uh, not a legal entity in terms of uh, electoral participation, uh, but certainly there might as an electoral Insti I mean, electoral, uh, what I would say, that entity, perhaps one of the entities, is still very much there. So I want to rule out uh, uh, their uh, backing up of certain independent uh, candidates or even many of the electorates uh, discreetly or uh, I would say, uh, I mean, uh, uh backing up them i mean so that's that's pretty much there so um, uh their their uh existence is very much there and i think this is well recognized by the government and state uh, agencies so is the bnp i'm wondering if maybe we can uh pivot a little bit to a theme that's been just under the surface in a number of your comments and um, the, the international role of, of various actors in this election season um 
uh, obviously regional and uh, and global uh, actors are always going to be important to, to Bangladesh's politics, but especially it seems like in this uh, uh, polarized environment, India, the United States, China, various European states um, have all responded differently to the to the unfolding electoral stalemate. Um, how do you all think about um, the relative importance of these different actors, the different approaches that they've brought to engaging in the uh, in the uh, stalemate? I can start with the United States, and then and Shahab can provide some insights into the the other international players. And I think the United States might not be the most influential player in Bangladesh, which I still think would would be the Indians, but it's it's arguably the most interesting um, in terms of its engagement with Bangladesh over the past two years. I think pulling back, um, the United States has a, a set of interests in Bangladesh. There's economic and trade interests. United States is the largest market for Bangladesh garments, their counterterrorism and security interests, interests in regional stability. The U.S. also sees Bangladesh as a partner in climate change, adaptation, in humanitarian relief for Rohingya uh, refugees and, and kind of other issues. And I think the U.S. wants to strengthen these mutually shared interests. And of course, geopolitics is a backdrop to all of this for the U.S. with the rise of South Asia in geopolitical importance and its emphasis on India, the smaller states of South Asia have also risen. And the fact that India sees Bangladesh as a key ally also shapes U.S. views on Bangladesh. However, I think the Biden administration has also centered democracy and human rights in its foreign policy for both strategic and normative reasons. And it's clear that the administration sees Bangladesh as fitting into this democracy assistance agenda, right? Bangladesh has a democratic culture. It has a recent history of transfers of power through democratic elections. The last two elections in Bangladesh, 2014, 2018, failed to meet international standards, but I think there is a belief that Bangladesh can perform better. And the Bangladesh government for its part has said that it, it wants to improve um, the electoral process. And so all of this combines to inform US policy in Bangladesh, but I think US policy has become increasingly defined by democracy promotion. Uh, and I think this has included a series of high profile punitive measures to push Bangladesh to improve its electoral processes. Bangladesh was denied two invitations to uh, the democracy summit. The US put sanctions on the rapid action battalion uh, which is uh, an elite security service in Bangladesh. They announced a policy of visa restrictions for any Bangladeshis trying to come to the US who are deemed to have undermined uh, free and fair elections in the country. And the US has also consistently called for free and fair elections. This is coming from the US embassy, from the State Department and others. And the US government insists they don't favor any political party. They just want to see a free and fair process, but according to the opposition, this pressure has has worked, right? They argue that the police are more restrained, that the opposition has more space um, to operate, and they praise the United States and other um, international powers for this pressure. I'd say on the kind of downside for the U.S., this pressure has definitely strained relations with um, the Bangladesh government, right? The Bangladesh government insists they're going to hold free and fair elections, and they don't need U.S. lecturing Right. Bangladesh officials have lashed out at the U.S. The prime minister at one point accused the U.S. of essentially trying to overthrow 
her government. There have been recent incidents of mostly lower level Obama League officials threatening violence against the, the U.S. ambassador. Uh, that said, defense cooperation, economic assistance, and other issues have continued and I think remain strong. So despite some of the hostility that has emerged around elections, both sides continue to see each other as important for their interests, which I think is, has kept the relationship relatively strong. No, I, 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 I agree. I mean, I solely agree with Jeff, uh, because uh, despite all these odds between uh, the political leadership and the United States, uh, the relationship between these two country continues, countries uh, continuing in a super speed. Uh, I mean, we might see that uh, slowing down of several components, but that's largely due to the election and the post-election cabinet and many other issues that will certainly uh, needs to be measured. Uh, uh, but uh, there are a few things. I mean, just to add to uh, Jeff, I mean, well, India is certainly very critical for the government without any doubt, because both the countries have a very strong relationship. And India has emphatically made it very clear that their uh, support for the current regime um, is very much well-defined, uh, whether they see it from the security point of view, whether they see it from the economic point of view or see it uh, from the Chinese point of view, then they certainly need that. But on the other hand, the Chinese are very important to the overall uh, economy in Bangladesh. And I think which uh, Awami League has made it quite clear. I mean, um, because our largest import comes from uh, China and our export basket is very much related to Chinese import. So therefore, uh, that sort of uh, circulation is not going to go anywhere. So therefore, I think the Chinese are pretty conf uh, confident with the ongoing uh, economic trajectory, which is run by the current government. So I think they're pretty okay. Uh, and then when the United States come, I mean, the United States is certainly... Uh, vital for Bangladesh. I mean, and there's no d doubt about it. But uh, I think uh, there is a lot of uh, miscommunication going on. And there is a gap of uh, communication, particularly in the public uh, uh, sphere, uh, which leads to disinformation and misinformation too. And I think that's where some sort of work is needed to be done. And otherwise, I believe that the relationship between these two countries uh, really hasn't gone to a level which can be uh, considered as alarming. Um, democracy is certainly an issue. I mean, so far as I understand, the uh, American demand, I mean, for free and fair election has always been misinterpreted to a great extent. Uh, a lot of people wanted to take it to a level that this is an attempt for regime change. I have repeatedly said there's no reason to think like that, but certainly a decent uh, free and fair election will always be comfortable for everyone. I mean, to, in terms of our compliance with the Western uh, uh, trade, if our uh, issues about Western financial institutions and certainly we will need to comply in any case uh, so i think uh, there is much more of a hyped up understanding of the american position 
And uh, there has been a lot of political narratives there to take undue advantage in the public atmosphere that that rules within the public discourse. So I don't think uh, we have a serious, serious level of problem with the practice now. Maybe we can start to wrap up um, a little bit by, uh, by looking forward. Um, both in the short term, I'm curious what you all think are the most likely sort of best case and worst case scenarios for the next six weeks or so um, in the in the country. Um, and then even taking a little bit of a longer view, um, you know, some have seen in this kind of crisis in Bangladesh, uh, another example of this broader trend that sometimes scholars call democratic backsliding or democratic regression um, that's gone on uh, around the world, not just in, in Bangladesh. Um, but I'm curious how you see uh, at this point in time um, the the current election um, impasse as uh, either fitting into that broader pattern of democratic weakening across the world or or actually um, giving some signs of, of optimism looking forward in the longer term. So short term, long term, um, uh, likely outcomes and uh, and legacies of this for democracy in the country. Those are those are tough questions to to answer. Um, you know, I think you mentioned kind of worst worst case scenario. I think it's kind of worst case from from whose perspective. I, I think is is the is the framing right for the BNP. Like they are banking on unrest, on civil disobedience, and international pressure before and after the election, right? In order to kind of to to get a, a new election called or or pressure the government into making a series of concessions. This doesn't occur, then its boycott effectively locks them out of, of power with little new back. Um, and perhaps its leadership in London is willing to wait for the Iwami League effectively to, to implode, but the BNP could be rendered irrelevant in, in the short term. Um, for the Iwami League, it's banking on controlling violence and unrest, overseeing a, a passable election with with kind of little visible fraud and a respectable turnout. And as a result, they're hoping international pressure will dissipate. And if this doesn't occur, um, then the party could lose control of the streets and the bureaucracy and its hold on power would be seriously challenged. So I think those are some of the, the worst case scenarios for the parties themselves. When we think about, to your kind of latter question on the overall health of democracy, in the country and the state institutions, I think, you know, in Bangladesh, the state institutions are not kind of independent from the party that's in power. So the kind of I think the health of Bangladesh's democracy is a is a reflection of the health of the parties themselves. And so, in that sense, I think there is is reason for concern um, for the Awami League, with largely unchecked power over the last. 15 years, they've faced internal challenges around corruption, around violence from their student wing, internecine factional fights. There's a question of succession of who will hold the party together after Hasina um, leaves the scene. And then for the, for the BNP, I think after January, assuming it boycotts, um, it will have been out of power for nearly 20 years. Its leadership is divided between London and DACA, and so can the party kind of sustain its support base um, of, of cadres for this long out of power. And then both parties do lack a degree of internal democracy to cultivate new leaders and new ideas. And so I think for, for Bangladesh, 
its citizens I do think have a strong democratic ethos, which should give us some hope for Bangladesh's um, democratic trajectory, but both parties have cultivated this kind of zero-sum politics that have created a political crisis that does need to, to be addressed in order to, to get Bangladesh back on track. No, I, I fully agree with uh, Jeff, and I think uh, what he has mentioned is whether our political culture essentially has changed over the past three decades. Um, uh, there is a lot of criticism about it. I mean, I think we still believe in zero-sum uh, game. I mean, uh, in any case, none of the political parties win, but only the one that in the, uh, in the helm of power will continue. Uh, and if the opposition comes to power, will there be a behavioral change? I mean, I don't think we have really got any kind of credible evidence that uh, even if you change, um, are we going to get a new sets of uh, political direction, political ideology, or perhaps political culture? Uh, I think we are far away from that at the moment. And I think uh, that's where our international uh, academia or civil society or political enterprises should focus on that how we how we can like qualitatively change uh, the political culture which literally doesn't uh, allow a safe growth or progress of democratic institutions in bangladesh I mean, both the political parties can blame each other for eternal period of time for destroying the democratic institutions. But if you really ask for a solution and the indicators of implementing those solutions is perhaps missing. Uh, and that's where I believe uh, we have a plenty of work to do. Well, thank you both for taking time out in this busy season to uh, to join us. Um, really important discussion, kind of setting the stage for uh, what's going to be a very active next month, I'm sure. Um, uh, to our listeners, um, we're glad to have been with you this uh, semester. We're wrapping up the academic semester here on campus at the University of Louisville. So we will have a bit of a pause in the podcast schedule and broader event schedule for the Center for Asian Democracy in the coming weeks. Uh, but keep your eyes on our Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram accounts. Um, because uh, a new semester of events and podcast episodes will be coming before too long. Um, as always, subscribe to the Inside Asia podcast on services like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, we'll be back with future episodes before long. And until then, be well and enjoy the holiday season. Thanks again, uh, Shahab and Jeff. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for inviting us.